from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. This is the 100th episode of At Liberty, so we're doing things a little bit differently. Over the last two years, we've spoken with civil rights leaders, organizers, journalists, artists, ACLU lawyers, and people whose lives have been affected by the civil rights and liberties issues of our day. We've covered family separation at the border, talked to founders of the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements, and we even spoke via video link with Edward Snowden. To mark the 100th episode, I'm catching up with someone whose voice will sound familiar to loyal listeners. Lee Rowland was at Liberty's first host, and she's currently the policy director at the New York Civil Liberties Union. Together, we're going to look back at some of our most memorable At Liberty moments. We'll discuss how much has happened in the world since we started in 2018, and how many of these conversations still resonate with the questions we're wrestling with today. Lee Rowland, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome back to At Liberty. Oh, hello there. So look, the listeners who have been with us from the very beginning will remember you. Uh, you're a bit of an ACLU legend. I mentioned you're the policy director at the New York Civil Liberties Union. You were the original host of At Liberty, but that's only two of the five or six jobs that you've had at the ACLU over your career. So for those of us who might not remember every detail, can you tell us who are you and how did you become the first host of At Liberty? Well, it's a, well there's a lot of detail I promise to omit for everyone's <laughs> listening pleasure, but At Liberty actually served as kind of my transition out of my lifelong role as an ACLU lawyer and into the policy world more formally. I've been pretty much at the ACLU without exaggeration since law school. My first gig was at the ACLU of Connecticut in law school. I worked at the ACLU of Nevada as their only staff attorney and basically Jill of all trades for many years um, before heading over to National, where I got to meet you. Um, and I worked in the speech privacy and technology project for a while before becoming At Liberty's first host, which was quite a unique gig and cool experience and transitioned now into a policy director role at the New York affiliate. So it's a kind of a weird situation, not to get too behind the scenes, but I actually sort of stepped into both of Lee's two previous jobs. I'm both a free speech lawyer, as Lee was for many years at National, mm -hmm. uh, and the host of At Liberty. So I want to get into some of the free speech issues and how we've tackled those over the years. Sure. But focusing first on hosting At Liberty, what was the goal for you? What was the objective? What were you hoping to get out of At Liberty? What were you hoping to put out into the world? Well, you're an interesting audience for this because I'm sure you will understand Emerson. But, you know, one benefit, I think, of doing free speech work at the ACLU is you're in a constant dialogue with your colleagues when free speech either overlaps or creates tensions with their issue areas, right? The free speech issues can often put you in a weird position. You know, you're arguing to take a case that, for example, someone from the Racial Justice Project might really have heartburn over. And, you know, you're going into those conversations with a mission, right, which is to kind of protect the ACLU's free speech footprint um, and to make sure we're moving First Amendment rights forward. And what was so lovely and, and appealing about taking the podcast hosting gig is that I got to have those same conversations, the really the hardest ones, right? How do we 
deal with Title IX and due process and free speech and women's rights? How do we deal with street protest when the protesters are obvious racists, right? How do we reconcile speech and privacy? It wasn't my job to hold the line. But just to get to sit in a room and hear brilliant people wrestle with the same tensions, concerns, strategies, you know, that I think we all wrestle with. And I think it made me a better listener, both kind of as a lawyer, as an advocate, but also just as a human. It's a really good practice and exercise, I think, to come into a conversation where your only job is really to support the conversation, right? To make sure it's rich and interesting and has a narrative. And I just love that. It was so different from what I think of a litigator's job often is, which is to win an argument, right? Instead, you come in and you just want to hear one. That was a nice switch. Mid-2018, when At Liberty started, I was actually getting ready to join the ACLU as a staff attorney. And one of the ways that I studied the organization and its history and current issues was by listening to every episode of the podcast that you had hosted. And as you and others have said, you know, the podcast is such an intimate experience. It's right in your ear. It's a human voice. And it was just a really powerful way to learn about the ACLU's issues, but not just the issues, but the personalities and the people behind the issues and the stories that go into the work. So when I arrived at the ACLU, finally, uh, later in 2018, I met Noah and I told her immediately that I was a huge fan of the podcast. And actually, why don't we pause and hear from Noah and also our colleague Molly Kaplan, another creator of At Liberty, to share the origin story behind the ACLU's At Liberty podcast. And then Lee and I will come back. So it was the wake of the 2016 presidential election, and we are all working. I mean, it felt like we were adding hours and minutes to each day to figure out how to address the onslaught of civil rights and civil liberties abuses that were just coming all the time in the wake of the election. And we were all so maxed out and so tired. But Noah came to me. She said, don't kill me. But I think the ACLU needs a podcast. And I was like, oh, God, you're right. But how? I had a full-time job already, but I kind of became fixated on making this happen. So I started working with Terry and Molly and Nora uh, and some others to make At Liberty. And it was really worthwhile. There was so much attention on the ACLU at the time and a lot of excitement internally around finding new ways to tell our story and communicate about the work. And when it comes to stories, the ACLU just has an embarrassment of riches. It's got really interesting clients with all sorts of backgrounds working to overcome these terrible injustices. It pushes the envelope on all these big, fascinating questions like how should freedom be defined and what is privacy and how does discrimination show up in the day-to-day? What strikes me as so amazing is the fact that Noah kind of had to you know, fight for the podcast to make it happen. And I'm reflecting on 2016, you know, how surreal it was. You've got an authoritarian menace in the White House, and the ACLU is probably a good wagon to hit your horse to. And it's so incredible that we already had that organizational brand, that that meaning to people that we were the ones who would fight against the worst authoritarian impulses, that we would keep our checks and balances flowing. We would protect our democracy. And so we had a fan club. We had a crew, right? When people needed it so bad, they needed that support. 
And the podcast seems like such an obvious thing that there was just such a thirst to hear about how we're upholding civil rights and civil liberties in the 21st century with a President Trump, you know, in the face of unprecedented harms to civil rights and civil liberties. And I think it means something right now for people to feel connected to that. We didn't exist yet when Trump was elected, but there have been some landmarks that have passed and that we've been able to witness and cover here on the podcast. I mean, one of them uh, that looms large in within the ACLU and in the national conscience is Charlottesville. I know that was an episode that you recorded with Ben Wisner and Dennis Parker. And I want to talk more about that, but there have been also a whole bunch of other historical moments uh, that we can get to as well. So we're going to spend the next sort of portion talking about some of our favorite episodes and ones that we remember. But I know that one that was particularly impactful for you and, you know, impactful for listeners is one that I listened to before I joined the ACLU and remember distinctly. I want to talk about the Charlottesville episode. Can you just tee us up? What was the idea behind the episode and what was covered? So folks undoubtedly remember the tragedy that unfolded in Charlottesville when a rally was planned by folks who were racist, members of the quote-unquote alt-right, and it was advertised for folks to show up and bring guns. It was frankly, you know, a kind of toxic mix for someone to get hurt, and Heather Heyer was murdered by one of the protesters in a car. The ACLU of Virginia had played a role in that, in basically asking the government to defend canceling the rally in advance, which it had attempted to do, and which a federal court stopped them from doing because the city had just not justified it. And one thing that's probably important for listeners to know if they don't is that doing that kind of protest litigation, filing a lawsuit related to a government, refusing to give you a permit for a large protest, for example— is historically one of the kind of bread and butter actions that affiliates of the ACLU engage in. It's very common, right? You work in a state, in a city with the same attorney general, maybe the same city attorney. It's really problematic if they start saying, no, you guys can't protest here on Tuesday, right? Because that applies to everybody that's going to be in your hometown looking for a permit. And our job is to protect free speech rights. The tensions between armed racists and the protection of free speech it's actually a tension that's existed for decades in this country and, and in conversations at the ACLU. I think the difference in Charlottesville is that we have an ascendant racist leader in Donald Trump. And it really felt like the situation had changed, right? And a lot of what we do is anti-authoritarian work. So it, it feels different in the age of Trump fighting for those rights, so in the wake of that and the ACLU's involvement in it, we held a podcast that featured both your boss and my former boss, Ben Weisner, who runs the speech project at National ACLU, and also the head of the racial justice program of the ACLU at the time, Dennis Parker. And this was a conversation we had before Charlottesville, during Charlottesville, after Charlottesville, and the main question is, how does the ACLU keep doing free speech work and racial justice work when sometimes those two issues combine into something as toxic as Charlottesville? How do we uphold both of those principles? You know, can we? It was two people who care deeply about civil rights, looking at this reality on the ground, looking at guns and race and protest and the government and saying, how do we weed whack through this thicket and come to a world, right, that we want to see where we have both free speech and racial justice? How do we lead through to that path? And just to hear from both of them reflecting on that 
in remarkably similar ways, really stuck with me. Let's hear an excerpt from that episode where we're hearing from Dennis Parker, the head of the racial justice program. You know, I, I don't think that I don't think that anything changed from a year ago when this happened in uh, Charlottesville. I, I don't think that suddenly neo-Nazis became a problem. I think this is a problem that we've always lived with and that this exposed it in a way that we hadn't seen before. And it did create that response. But there is also the danger of the opposite, that, that if you hear it so often that you get used to it, that there is a group of people who feel that in light of the president of the United States saying that there are good people on both sides, that that gives them license to behave in, in a way that is reprehensible. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that the suppression of speech is the answer to that, but to recognize that it moves in both directions. Yeah, what Dennis said there is so undeniably right, right? This isn't a new problem. In some ways, it's baked into the history of our country in pretty much every way. But it's also such a living and breathing issue. And, you know, here we are sitting in the middle of a pandemic from our homes. And even now, Emerson, there are people planning open the government protests, you know, in, in Albany at the Capitol, encouraged in part, at least by the president. In many states, they have shown up heavily armed. Michigan, I think a surreal thing is unfolding where folks can't bring signs into the state house, but they can bring their AK, right? So we've actually, you know, as a formal matter, Michigan has protected the Second Amendment to the exclusion of the first. And so I think that Dennis's quote that we just heard from is always living in my mind, which is how do we as civil liberties advocates maintain a free speech tradition that isn't undermined fundamentally by the second. And that is not an easy question. In fact, it you know, the structure of our constitution makes it about the most difficult question you can ask. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, an interesting episode for me because as I mentioned, I didn't join the ACLU until uh, late in 2018. But in some ways, the conversation between you and Ben and Dennis was also my job description. Uh, and I was hired very much to be a free speech attorney, but focusing on the intersection of free speech and racial justice, focusing on free speech on campus, which is another issue that you all spoke about. And it was fascinating to hear my job kind of is to embody both Ben and Dennis right. in my work on a daily basis. So that's that looks like representing DeRay McKesson, who's a, an activist who was who we're hoping that the Supreme Court will take up his case. Uh, I think his God, episode has just aired. All um, right. So listeners will have just heard about how so much of what we value about the First Amendment in terms of robust protections for free speech and the right to protest are at stake uh, when police officer from Louisiana can sue DeRay McKesson for something he had nothing to do with, had no authorization, and we're not even sure really happened yeah. uh, during a protest. I want to turn now to another episode that I know has stuck with you, and it's an issue that continues to be live today, which is about felony disenfranchisement and the efforts in Florida oh. around Amendment 4 to make sure that folks who have been convicted of felonies can regain their right to vote after they've paid their debt to society. So this episode included both Dale Ho, the head of the Voting Rights Project, who I have to note is I think the only person that both you and I interviewed, and I've interviewed him at least three times. I think you I might think have interviewed so. him twice. I interviewed him twice, uh, yep. 
So Dale is by far and away the most frequent guest on At Liberty. It has nothing to do with the fact that he was a former actor uh, <laughs> featured on Law and & Order and other places. Uh, it's just because he does such amazing work for the Voting Rights Project. But also on that episode, it was both Dale, an ACLU attorney and supervisor leader, and Desmond Mead, who is an activist from Florida, someone who was had a felony conviction and had lost his right to vote. And you got to talk to both of them. This was before Amendment 4 passed. Yep. And I want to know, sort of, you've mentioned that this was one of your favorite episodes, and I'm wondering why. Well, you know, I went to law school, and I have a job that, at least theoretically, I get paid every day to do this advocacy, right? I mean, mm. I do it because I care. I think most of us didn't exactly get into this for the popularity or the money, now that we're checking off the reasons you don't become an ACLU attorney. <laughs> um, but I still think, I just want to acknowledge, I do this professionally, right? Almost everybody who advocates that has been on the podcast that we work with, they do this professionally. It's your job. You wake up in the morning to figure out how you expand liberty, right? Or right. expand equality. And you do it, kind of sun up to sundown. And of course, it makes all of us tick. It's why we do this work. But I think there is just something so momentous to me about somebody like Desmond Mead, who is a community activist entirely, entirely 100% springing from pure principle, right? I mean, this happened to me. It should not happen to anybody else. And the energy that that guy has, oh my God, you know, this is Desmond Mead has a criminal conviction that has impacted his ability to move forward and rehabilitate um, because of crummy policies that don't match at all the purposes of our criminal justice system. And for someone like that, who is at the receiving end of what I feel to be a gutless, unprincipled, and an immoral policy that strips people of their citizenship, like a la ancient Greek exile, it's just bullshit, to get up every morning and not only not be cowed, right? Or not like just live in, you know, fatalistic, I'm giving up, or I'm just angry, I'm whatever. You know, Desmond gets up at what, six in the morning and goes out and collects numbers and makes sure people know that there was an amendment campaign, which thank God passed, that, you know, yeah. he he spent as much of his time making sure that people knew their rights and could petition for whatever rights they were entitled to, as he did kind of fight for his own rights. And I'm just in awe of someone with that level of principle, that level of drive, and that commitment just to improving their community. And again, doesn't get paid for it, right? Doesn't get yeah. fame for it. It's just the right thing to do. And I think hearing from both Dale and Desmond was a really powerful way for a lot of people at that time weren't really familiar with Amendment 4. It had only just been adopted or accepted onto the ballot to go before the Florida voters at that point. And as you mentioned, it was passed. Amendment 4 is now a part of the Florida Constitution, but the battle continues. So let's hear an excerpt from that episode and then we'll come back. You know, the only problem that that occurs is when people or folks try to politicize this issue. And but it's not as political as it may seem on the surface. It really isn't. At the end of the day, this country is about American citizens being able to have the opportunity to have their voices heard in spite of their viewpoint. So I don't care if you vote left or vote right. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is that you have the opportunity as a citizen to vote. And if I'm going to silence you because I think that you're not going to vote like I want you to vote, then we're not talking about a democracy anymore. We're talking about a 
a dictatorship. That was a great episode. It was so nice that I, when I was host, and then you as host kind of each got to see the bookends of the Florida Question 4 saga. Not that it's totally over. But speaking of Dale, our unofficial third co-host whose name we keep invoking, you mentioned the time capsule effect that these big moments have happened while you've been taping the podcast. I certainly have gotten to see many of them go by. And I feel like the podcast is such an exciting medium where we can hear about them in close to real time. One of the most notable moments was with Dale, the kind of crazy up-and-down drama we had with the ACLU's challenge to the census question. What was that like? I feel like you were taping it almost in real time. No, it was definitely one of the most memorable taping experiences. We talked to Dale a few times. One time we talked to him, and it was before he had his argument at the Supreme Court. And so that was super interesting. And for those of you who might remember that the citizenship question, there was a question that the Trump administration tried to add to the census, asking if you're a citizen or not. And the predictable impact of having that question on the census would have been an undercount of people who were either undocumented or had undocumented people in their families, or they might think that they might be suspected of being undocumented based on their national origin, race, language, all of those things. So we thought that including this question on the census was really dangerous and was going to lead to an undercount and particularly targeting some of the most marginalized people who we want to make sure their voices are heard. So I got to talk to Dale as he prepped for the oral argument. But then I also was there the day of the decision, which was kind of surreal. So there's a documentary coming out that features Dale and that conversation. And it's really funny because there's a scene in it where Dale is reading the Supreme Court opinion. And the way that the opinion was written, and you will probably remember this, Lee, is they basically list all of the 16 reasons why we have to lose this case for 30-some, 50-some pages. It's all about all the arguments that we've lost along the way. And then at the end, basically they say, but the government's clearly lying, and therefore they are not allowed to go forward. So Dale was reading through the first 50 pages and saying, wait, I think we lost. I think we lost. Wait, did we lose? I think we lost. We lost again. And finally gets to the end and he says, wait a minute. I think we won. (laughs) We won. And so I was actually there for that and then interviewed him very quickly afterwards. And he was, you know, out of breath. And and it was just this amazing moment where, you know, litigation rarely has that kind of dramatic payoff. You know, it's years long. You win a narrow victory, blah, blah, blah. But this was like, you know, if we win this, the question's not going on because they don't have enough time to print it. As it turned out, there were some additional efforts to try to get the question on. But it was really surreal, and I feel, you know, I have nothing to do with our voting rights work, but I felt like I was really there on the inside, both for the Supreme Court argument and for the decision day. So that was quite an impactful experience. And I think we have an excerpt from my conversations with Dale Ho. So at this point, we're willing to say there's no chance that this census question is getting on this this round of the census. In a sane, rational world dealing with an administration that was approximating normalcy. Well, then, then you got to stop say, right there. No, no, it would be impossible. <laughs> but look, this administration won't give toothbrushes to children at the border. Right. Okay, so, so we know that this administration has what I'll call a loose relationship with the rule of law, right? I think under normal circumstances, this should be the end of the road. But we'll be watching them. 
I mean, you did play a role in our voting rights work and that you caught this amazing lightning in a bottle on tape, right? And we have this kind of historical record on either side of the Supreme Court argument and the decision coming down. And that that stuff is gold. One piece, one of the things that makes At Liberty so interesting is that we get to have sort of the insider view from ACLU attorneys, but then we have all sorts of other fascinating guests. And I feel so fortunate to have been able to meet and speak with and hear from folks who are activists, scholars, leaders in all sorts of ways, artists. And some of those conversations have also been some of the most memorable. And you talked about Desmond Mead. You know, he's not an ACLU attorney, but that was a conversation that really stuck with you. I think some of the joy is hearing about inspiring work or new ways of thinking that you don't hear every day. So I'd love to hear from you. Who who did you, you know, just like really, were you just over the moon to talk to who wasn't, you know, the ACLU lawyers we all know and love? Well, I have to say, so the two people, when I first was approached to become the host of At Liberty, I spoke with Noah Yahot and Terry Tang, who then ran the podcast. And they said, you know, Lee has taken a new job. She's moving on to Nightglue. She's got to step down an At Liberty host. Do you want to do it? And the first two names that popped out of my mouth were Megan Rapino and Professor Melissa Murray. And I'm very, very proud Aim to say high, that Anderson. I've interviewed, interviewed <laughs> both of them. So the, those stick out because those were my dream guests. The other one I met, the That's other badass. one was um, Spike Lee, which we're still working on. But we did get to talk to Megan Rapino, obviously not an ACLU attorney. Right. Um, and I got to ask her not only about the fight for equal rights and equal pay, but also what it's like to bury a penalty kick in a World Cup final. <laughs> um, so that was one that definitely sticks out. Professor Melissa Murray is an NYU law professor also among the more stylish law professors in the game, Uh, and also the host of Strict Scrutiny, which is a badass podcast full of law professor women. And so we had a couple of conversations also around race and family and the law, and her expertise is deep and her storytelling is vibrant. And so those are the ones that really stick out. The ones where you mix some deep expertise with a personal narrative and someone who can really tell their own stories. I have to mention, I'm unabashed in the fact that he's my favorite guest, is Reginald Dwayne Betts. Mm. Uh, and he's a poet, he's a lawyer, and he's a formerly incarcerated person. I've interviewed him twice, most recently, I think, for episode 98. But those are episodes, quite honestly, that not only do I remember, but that changed my life in actually uh, <laughs> a real way. Talking to Dwayne about his experience having been incarcerated, about his, his experience as an attorney, about his experience as a poet... I mean, it inspired me to reach out to a cousin of mine who's been locked up for decades. And I always had a block around sort of figuring out how to navigate. We are roughly the same age. We last saw each other when we were both about 12 years old. Wow. And four years later, he was uh, sentenced at 16 to 35 to life. And I was, you know, graduating from prep school and on my way to college and then law school. So sort of trying to figure out how on earth you get the courage to bridge that divide and to talk to someone who's, whose life has branched off from yours in such a deep way. I'm really thankful for Dwayne for helping me. You know, and now my cousin and I, we write back to each other almost every week. We're in touch. We're trying to sort out some of his legal issues. Hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel for him. But the, the conversations with Reggie Dwayne Betts not only were personally impactful in a real way, But he had that mix of expertise and creativity and just sort of willing 
to be there and be present and share. That's amazing. I didn't know it had that impact on you. That's really incredible. Maybe that's that soul of the poet reaching into you. and Because you know, right? You know intellectually. Your cousin's your yeah. cousin. <laughs> I know how you yeah. think politically about prison. But there was something about bets, right, that spurred you to that action. And you've got to wonder if it's the marriage of the the intellect and, and again, that poetry that rearranged things for you. It's so cool, Emerson. Yeah, and I mean... It's, it's the fact that it took me so long to reach out to him is not something I'm proud of. But as my cousin told me, it's never too late. And he doesn't hold it against me at all, which is the most generous thing. Was, about that was him. very I'm, kind of him to reassure yeah. you that it was not too late. <laughs> I'm so glad you reached out. That's fantastic. But it also, you know, it brings to mind the last time I talked to Dwayne Betts and the last time I talked to my cousin, the thing that we talked about was the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and especially on incarcerated folks. It's, it's having an impact on everybody. But the ACLU, we've been covering it recently on At Liberty. You know, the ACLU, our colleagues are working around the clock. You're working around the clock to try to get people out of harm's way, whether it's in immigration detention or other types of incarceration, but also to try to protect the right to medical services, including abortion. You know, we're in a, in some ways a, a brand new situation, but it's not that new. It's just sort of bringing out some of the old problems that we've always had. How do you see At Liberty and the podcast and the ACLU sort of staying relevant and moving forward in a way that that continues to, to be useful to ourselves and to our listeners? Well, Dan, that's a hard question. And I'm fortunately not on the production team, so it's not entirely my problem. But your interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones comes to mind. I interviewed Jill Lepore, also a historian, yeah. right, of America and our history. And I think in some ways it's hard for me not to think of those kind of long lessons of history right now because we have... I think the pandemic, not that I would say there's much of a silver lining about a pandemic. Obviously, people are dying. But it does give us a cold and clear opportunity to give a hard look at how we've arranged American society, right? How racial redlining has devastated communities, how zoning codes put public housing next to environmental remediation projects. Um, And I think both of those podcasts and both of those historians really spoke to the kind of long arc of the American footprint, like what it looks like, what makes us us, and how, especially I think the 1619 Project and Nicole Hannah-Jones really, really spoke about how present all of that history still is, right? It resonates on the same thread. Our funding decisions, our zoning decisions, our, you know, fiscal policy, everything tends to just ratify that history. I think the podcast can play a role in making sure we don't flinch from the hard lessons of history and how we have failed to stop and upend those patterns. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that stuck with me about the conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project more generally is, you know, she says, I'm not a historian, I'm a journalist, right? So she is trying to shift the narrative. And the reason that we have a podcast, you know, the ACLU, we try to shape how the Constitution is interpreted. We try to push the law in the way that we think it should go. But I think the podcast can also help in terms of shifting that narrative about what really is happening, what's really important, and how we should be framing and thinking about some of these really hugely important issues that that confront our society and confront our democracy. So on that light note, I want to switch to a lightning round uh, hosted by... Our executive producer, Kendall Seesmeyer, she's going to come in and ask us some quick fire questions to wrap up. 
All right, guys. I know that this is one of Emerson's favorite new things to include in our podcast episodes. And I'd like to think that listeners really enjoy them. So I'm going to ask you some speed round questions. First off, favorite episode, period. Emerson, go. I'm going to pick one that I haven't mentioned already because... All the ones I mentioned already are also my favorites. But I think an underrated episode that always sticks with me was Wyatt Senek. He's a comedian. He was the star of a movie, Medicine for Melancholy. That was my wife and my first date. It was He was hilarious. He made a joke about how it was obvious and very touching that we had named our kids after him, even though we actually didn't. But it was hilarious. I laughed through the entire episode, Wyatt Senek, favorite episode. Emily? Mine's going to reveal me for the true anti-intellectual I really am. My favorite episode was our holiday movie (laughs) episode where ACLU staff all suggested their picks for kind of end of year holiday cinema viewing. And kind of true to ACLU form, it went from the goofy to the erudite. And, you know, some people picked four movies. Some people were like, it is only this. And if anybody (laughs) hasn't listened to it, it is Worth the price of admission alone for Eunice Rowe's epic rant about Die Hard, which I think spurred weeks, <laughs> weeks of conversation and argument over Die Hard as a Christmas movie, etc. Um, it's a blast. <laughs> it was just fun to do a just kind of a pure behind the scenes ACLU people having fun episode. So that's my favorite. Okay. Next question. An insight that shocked you from the podcast, from your time as host or your time as a listener? The insight that shocked me most, I have to say, was I interviewed Rebecca Nagel, who's from the Cherokee Nation, and she's a writer, journalist, and she's written a lot about a case that was actually heard by the Supreme Court today on the day that we were taping, uh, McGirt v. Oklahoma. But she talked about the process by which the Cherokee people and Native Americans more broadly had their land taken away from them by these United States. And this is a, a narrative that, you know, I know, I've studied, I understand on a I think, somewhat nuanced level. But I didn't think it was possible to shock me more about how our country has treated Native Americans. But in in preparing for uh, my conversation with Rebecca Nagel and reviewing all of her really amazing work, I have to say I was indeed shocked. And Lee? Ooh. The one that really comes to mind for me, and I, I don't know why I was a little hesitant about it, but we did a dual interview with Tarana Burke and Alyssa Milano about the Me Too movement. And I think as host, this is really kind of a behind the curtain moment here. I was a little nervous because my perception as like a member of the media was that Tarana Burke had kind of been co-opted, that she was a lifelong civil rights activist who had coined the phrase Me Too as a hashtag who was really like centering women and girls of color in her advocacy. And then, you know, some white actresses tweeted it out. It became a really popular hashtag and the kind of Me Too movement was born in American media. And I remember as host, I was a little nervous about how to ask around this. Like, I wanted to ask the question, but I wanted to ask it in a way that didn't assume what the relationship between those two women was. Alyssa Milano had immediately reached out to her as soon as she kind of got credit for the hashtag And they had developed a relationship on a personal level before they even kind of like talked about the advocacy. And that really struck me that there had been what, in my view, could have been this kind of shallow co-opting of a Black woman's voice. And it had actually been, surprise and delight, a kind of topic (laughs) of real and earnest discussion by and between them. And by the time I asked, they were like, 
totally together. Like, oh, you want to take it? You want to take it? And it was like so unfraught. And that was kind of a delight. It was something I thought I was going to like step into drama and it was kind of the opposite. Okay. And now for a bit of a even more casual turn, weirdest host quirk. Among the things that I've done in terms of being a host is studied all of the host quirks for all of my favorite podcasters. So I can tell you Terry Gross's quirks. I can tell you Mark Maron's quirks. Obviously, Michael Barbaro's quirks are very obvious. But mine, I think, has to be that I start 90 to 95% of all questions with the word well. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, I think I can uh, identify that, actually. Lee, do you have one? I have a very goofy and shallow one, which I just got a visual aid for. I don't know if you want to include this, but I'll tell you. I had a very, very bad habit of wearing the only pair of earrings I wear that makes an audible noise, a little click clack, <laughs> every time oh. I taped a podcast. And every, every once in a while I would listen, I would listen for this tiny little <laughs> rattle. Um, and then I got into a pattern where I think my subconscious was just like, trolling me because I would just literally be like, it's Tuesday, I'm taping, I just can't wear those earrings. And then I would show up and I'd be like, I'm wearing those damn earrings again. So my weirdest quirk was that I usually always took my earrings off before I taped, lest I accidentally wear my very loud earrings on air. (laughs) I thought there was a question on like favorite behind the scenes moment, but (laughs) it's okay. I prepared an answer to a question that doesn't exist. Bummer. Well, if you want, we can do that. We can do favorite behind the scenes moment. I will tell you my favorite behind the scenes moment was right when we started, we interviewed Cecile Richards, who was the head of Planned Parenthood for many years. And we were in our infancy and on the road as a podcast. So our wonderful tech, Nora, was doing everything she could to kind of control the envir- the sound environment in this hotel room we were in in D.C. We were at the ACLU National Staff Convening and kind of got a moment of Cecile Richards' time. Nora had gone up and covered everything in our hotel room with towels. She had called room service and asked for like 12 more towels and she was just trying to dampen the sound. So she literally had like taped a towel around the like flat screen TV on the wall. She'd like covered every, you know, window in towels. And Cecile Richards walks into this totally bizarre looking hotel room, right? Literally everything's covered in white towels. And without missing a beat, she says... Well, I'm either here for my massage or you all are going to murder me, but I don't think it's a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely can co-sign for as a host. If you can get a joke in before you start taping, the episode is going to be a hundred times better. Amen. By far, my most memorable behind the scenes moment was the time when we did a kids episode and I was interviewed by my three year old. He was then two year old and my five year old. And so getting them to figure out, they sort of were vaguely familiar with the concept that I worked on a podcast and they'd heard a couple episodes, but they don't know what a radio is. They don't know what a podcast is. And so, but getting to record with them and getting them to try to, you know, keep the right distance and actually speak on cue, people under six years old have a very hard time speaking on cue. So it was a miracle that we were able to pull that episode off, but it was such a thrill to be able to hear my kids on the air as well. That's awesome. They were so good, too. (laughs) They were, you know, top-notch. The last question is, what kind of impact do you hope the podcast continues to leave people with? Well, I hope I can take this one first, since I'm just the baby host and I feel like I've left it in much more capable hands, is, is really, I think, what Emerson has been doing, what you guys have been doing. And You know, I mentioned this concept of kind of like a time capsule or historical artifact. And I think having this 
as a standing weekly podcast, right, where we get to go in depth and we now I get to hear, not just do, but I get to listen to an in-depth, intimate look at the things the ACLU is thinking about, what makes civil rights and civil liberties move forward, but also to be there to capture these bonkers moments. And I just hope it keeps happening. I mean, I think for me, if we can just help folks get a little bit more texture, a little bit more depth on some of these really important issues, I think we've done our job. And then, as you said, I think there is a miracle that can happen in conversation with two human beings exchanging ideas. And I really hope that not only do we help folks learn a tiny bit, but that in the depth of our conversations, we can be have those brief moments of transporting ourselves and getting lost in the interaction. So I know as a host, it's really beautiful when those moments happen. And I'm thankful to all the guests who've brought us to those places. And I know as a podcast consumer, uh, that's what I enjoy most. Both really good answers. And I hope we continue to do that for people too. Thank you guys so much for both you're answering my questions, but also for this episode at large, it was such a delight to listen to you reflect on these moments. Um, and it made me want to go back and re-listen to a bunch. And thanks for all of your contributions over the last two years as really ushering this program along and creating what it is today. Yeah. Thanks. Happy and lucky to be a part of it. Thanks, Lee. See you soon. When we started, a season of 10 episodes seemed like a huge milestone. So I'm really proud that At Liberty is at 100 episodes. Happy 100th episode, At Liberty. Happy 100th episode, At Liberty. I hope that the podcast just continues to reach a wider and wider audience who can appreciate, you know, everything that it has to offer. Congratulations on 100 episodes and here's to 100 more. Thanks very much for listening. We'd love to hear about your favorite episodes and who you want to hear on the podcast in the future. Tweet at ACLU using the hashtag at Liberty. To close out our 100th episode, we wanted to do something we've never done. Read the credits so you can hear about all the people that make at Liberty. So here goes. Our executive producer is Kendall Seesmeyer. Rebecca McRae and Claire Goldberg are associate producers. Molly Kaplan is the ACLU's director of multimedia. Jessica Herman Weitz is the ACLU's Director of Artist Engagement. At Liberty was created and initially produced by Noah Yahoj, Terry Tang, and Nora Wilkinson. Our sound editors are Matt Boynton and Anya Gzerzik. Former interns include Samantha Narito, Sam Dembling, and Betty Vine. And a very special thanks to the many ACLU colleagues and alums who've contributed to At Liberty in innumerable ways. And finally, a quick announcement from me. In the next few weeks, I'll be stepping down as host of At Liberty to focus on my day job as a First Amendment staff attorney here at the ACLU. It's been a great honor and privilege to work on the podcast, and I'll remain a loyal fan and listener for the next hundred episodes. We've got a great lineup of conversations to look forward to. Next week, Anthony Ramiro, the executive director of the ACLU, will be joining us for the first time on the podcast and look out for coverage of major Supreme Court decisions in the next month. Until next week... Peace.